Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello, everybody. It's Todd Fredericks, uh, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) I know. I'm so ready. Um, Anyway, uh, you know, we've had this great set of conversations with Kent Brantley, and we're back again for the third segment. This is long, but it's really good stuff. And so uh, I think this episode we're going to deal specifically with resilience, and we're just so thankful that Dr. Brantley has given us his time and his patience uh, to, to talk to us about these things. They're very important. So with that, Nassar, take it over. Yeah. Um, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome again to our um, interview series with Dr. Kent Brantley. Uh, at the very end of, of last week's segment, you mentioned um, resilience kind of being the solution to burnout. Uh, and, and I mean, what you went through requires just an incredible amount of resilience to, you know, to keep pushing through and to keep fighting a disease like Ebola. So I guess my question is, what kept you going? You know, what was, what fueled that resilience for you? Um. I know that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, that is a tough one. And, and in, in part, it's tough because it's a misnomer to think that I just powered through and, and kept on going. Like, this turned my life upside down. Yeah. Right? I, I became a critically ill patient. I spent a month in the hospital, in isolation in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and a test and, subject for an unproven drug. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff going on here. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was editing a New England Journal of article, a New England Journal of Medicine article about myself in my isolation unit <laughs> that my doctors were trying to get published. That's got to be so weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they let me put my name on it with 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 them as a co-author. So you nice. got a publication out of it. That's great. There's a CV entry for your Ebola Silver experience. Lining. Yeah, I got a, I got a CV entry. That's awesome. I can't claim to have some sort of resilience that let me power through and bounce right back to uh, life as usual. There are some American Ebola survivors who, I don't think any of them you know, bounced right back to life as normal uh, be- because no one who suffers a critical illness is back on their feet a week later doing what they were doing before. It takes a long time to recover from something like that. But there are some others who who did get back to more of their usual activities um, more quickly than I did. Uh, I don't think I, th- I don't think that's what resilience is all about. Um, it's not just the ability to bounce right back to where you were before. Uh, and and I think healthy resilience it, it takes into consideration what you've experienced. And, and tries to respond in a, in a healthy way. Um, and that, that doesn't always mean just bouncing back. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think there's resilience. It's not a topic I've, uh, spent a whole lot of time talking about, uh, in, through my recovery and, in, in the last three years, um, it is it has been a topic of conversation uh, in the on the stage of global health, uh, particularly talking about West Africa and the aftermath of the Ebola epidemic. Uh, that's been you know that was a that was a conversation piece at WHO at the the 
World Health Assembly in 2015 was how do we how do we build more resilient health systems? Um, but I think resilience on a personal level is is even more complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that recovery process? You know, what, what was that like um, after you know after all the dust settled? Uh, you know, what was it like for you? And one thing too, Kent, as you consider that question, we haven't talked about your wife. We haven't talked about right. your family. I mean, they're going through this as well, and you can't even they can't even hold you or or, or be in contact with you. Maybe you can speak to those things together. Um, oof, that's a big question. So the day uh, during my treatment at Emory, the day that I um, really felt hungry and wanted to eat, I feel like is the day I turned the corner and started recovering. Hmm. Uh, so the day I thought, okay, I really, I'm going to make it. I'm confident I'm going to make it now. Um, from that day until now, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to break this down into some different different parts of the recovery. So the physical recovery. The physical recovery from a critical illness is a long road. And I had taken care of lots of ICU patients during my residency. Uh, I don't think I ever fully appreciated what it, requires to recover from a critical illness. And my doctors did a great job of, of helping set those expectations for me. I think what they told me when I was leaving the hospital was you, you should expect anywhere from, um, two to four days of recovery for every day that you were in the hospital. Wow. Uh, So I was in the hospital for a month. So they're, set, you know, they set the stage for me, the expectation for me that I am not going to be back to full strength anywhere from two to four months. And it was, it was about four months, uh, three, three and a half, four months Hmm. when I was able to look around and say, you know what? I think I'm, I think I'm back to normal. Um, but in those first, those first weeks, especially like the first week out of the hospital, I wanted to, to get up and go, right. I, I wanted to, um, go for a, a hike in the woods. I wanted to go play with my kids. We, I'd been out of the hospital like two weeks when, uh, we made a trip to Washington DC to testify to Congress. But when I, um, when I would exert myself, I mean, first of all, I didn't have much energy. So my wife and I did go for a hike in the woods the day after I got out of the hospital and I walked probably half a mile and said, I need to go back to the car. I'm done. Hmm. And I slept on the couch the rest of the day. Um, and so anytime I did exert myself, I became extremely fatigued. And in fact, like a week after I got out of the hospital, I developed what felt like viral syndrome. I mean, I was achy and tired and had a headache and my heart would race with the slightest activity. Um, and I just felt lousy. Hmm. It was scary. You know, I, I thought, oh no, am I 
am I not really better yet? Am I getting sick again? What's going on? Um, that's the nature of recovering from a critical illness with a virus, with a viral infection. Like it, my friend, Rick Sacra, another family doctor, um, he was my mentor in Liberia and he was in the news. He was the uh, third American to be evacuated from Liberia and brought back to America for treatment. He was the first one taken to Nebraska. And I remember when he got out of the hospital, I told him, hey, here's what you need to expect. Like in a week, you're going to feel awful and you're going to be achy and you're going to have no energy. But like me, he got, came out of the hospital thinking like, okay, I'm better. I'm ready to go. I want to conquer the world. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, he called me and was like, hey, I really appreciate you telling me what yeah. to expect because this was, it was exactly like what you said. And I, you know, get prevented a little bit of anxiety for him to know, okay, somebody else has been through this, uh, says that this is how they felt too. I'm not, not going crazy and not, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. Uh, so physical recovery from critical illness uh, is hard and long. And as physicians, I mean, I feel bad for the patients that I've taken care of before uh, who I did not know to give that kind of expectation. And you were um, so in your we, mid-30s, weren't you, Kent? Yeah, yeah, I was a young, healthy guy. Yeah, so the elderly, you can only imagine how it affects them, or older folks. Recovering emotionally, um, you know, this this is probably where, where it involves my family more. Um, recovering emotionally was, has been a long journey. Uh, my, I, my wife came to Atlanta when I arrived there. She was, she was there in the hospital the day I arrived and she stayed, I was in Emory for about three weeks. She was there every day. She sat outside my isolation room and talked to me on the intercom system. We looked at each other through the window. Um, so, yeah, she couldn't touch me. I couldn't touch her. But we were there together. Our kids were at my brother's house in Michigan for three weeks away from both of their parents. And they were, they were like five and three at the time. Um, that was, you know, it was hard being away from your kids like that mm -hmm. and, yeah. and worrying about your kids being away from you. Like even, even if it's, even if it wasn't, uh, the hardest for me emotionally, what was hard was being worried about how hard it was for them to be away from their parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when we were all reunited, um, it was, that was a really special time. Um, and we had to, you know, do the parenting thing of trying to explain to your five-year-old and your three-year-old what has just happened. Why, why dad was in the hospital for a month and why they, why it was that they had to stay with their aunt and uncle and cousins for a month. Hmm. Um, so there's that immediate kind of healing and, and 
growing as a family, but I also went to see a a counselor like every week for a year and a half or so. Um, it's actually a counselor who specialized in what's called missionary care. Um, she specializes in counseling for people who have worked cross-culturally and have had what's called traumatic re-entry. Where they have to leave their host culture unexpectedly and suddenly in some traumatic circumstance and are thrust suddenly back into their uh, home culture. Um, I could not have found a better counselor for for Amber and me. Um, Dottie has she's she's a dear now and uh, we still go see her occasionally but you know it took a long time of processing what had happened um, to me and to my family and and to our to our dream life the the thing we had worked towards for a decade that was suddenly ripped away from us of ser- of living and serving cross culturally in in Liberia. Kent, I'm so glad you brought that up, that, that sense of dislocation, because that was a question I had for you, because I, my line of research involves veterans and communication, and I watched that happen multiple tours of Iraq where soldiers were evacuated, and they struggled deeply with a sense of loss and dislocation from their units, and that's essentially kind of what happened to you. You had a team of yeah. a close family over there that suddenly now everything's changed. You don't see them. You don't know what's going on with them. Did, did you find that really affected you, not knowing what your colleagues were up to, or did you have experience, a sense of you know, not survivor's guilt, because you're obviously critically ill, but did any of those thoughts go through your mind, like, I've, I haven't completed my mission, or I've failed, or anything like that? Did you struggle with that at all? Um, yeah, I, I count it as a great blessing that I had a friend to walk that road with. Um, you know, Nancy was evacuated just a few days after I was, mm-hmm. and uh, our isolation rooms were across the nursing station from each other. We could if I stood in the right place in my room, I could look out my window and she could look out her window and we could see each other. <laughs> um, and we talked on the phone for hours a day as we recovered hmm. from our isolation rooms. And so it it was uh, an important part of my healing, I think, to have that friend to walk that road with somebody else who's going through the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um so I imagine in the context you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, I imagine it is easier for those veterans who have other veterans to share that experience with than, than ones who are uh, isolated. Um, just like it, I mean, I think that's what's so important about things like support groups for mm-hmm. people who are in the same circumstance you're in. Um, that was, that was huge. Mm-hmm. You know, I did struggle or, or wrestle with the the feelings of uh, not they weren't feelings of guilt like I failed or I um, you know didn't hold up my end of the bargain or whatever. It, but I had a totally new role to fill, mm. a totally new um, set of opportunities and responsibilities when I walked out of that hospital, um, I had a platform 
to share a message with the entire country and a lot of the world and an opportunity to be a voice for the people of West Africa who were not being given a voice on the international stage to call for the international community to intervene and help and to call on the U S government to intervene and help. Mm-hmm. Um, I took, I saw that opportunity, that responsibility when they invited me to come testify to Congress. And I took it very seriously. And I, I, for three years now, we've tried to, um, be responsible stewards of that kind of platform and those opportunities. I mean, even things like talking to you guys on this podcast is an opportunity to, uh, that I would not have had were it not for Ebola. Mm -hmm. But quite frankly, I moved to West Africa because I'm a family doctor. I want to take care of sick people who need a doctor. And that is way different than being a filling an advocacy role and, you know, testifying to Congress and going to meetings and, um, uh, raising funds and raising awareness. Those are, those are totally different roles. And so I did grieve the loss of that role hmm. for a time. Hmm. Uh, but I felt like I was doing the right thing. Like it was not, I needed to fill that role of advocate more than I needed to be one doctor over there treating Ebola patients uh, after I recovered. Hmm. Um, But that was not an easy, I mean, you know, I wanted to be back over there. I wanted to, I wanted to be doing what we were doing in the first place. Hmm. So going back to recovery for a second, um, would you say then now in, you know, we're recording this at the end of 2017, would you say that you fully recovered or is it still a process? Like, is it an ongoing process? Um, physically? Yes. I fully recovered. I, I, there are a lot of people who have what's called post Ebola syndrome, which is a, a widely varied syndrome. Some people have neuropathy, myopathy, uh, they vision problems, hearing problems, uh, PTSD kind of, uh, mental problems and emotional problems. Uh, I'm, I'm really thankful to have made a full recovery and to not experience any of those sequelae. Um, but in a conversation like this, when we're talking about recovery, like I, I kind of laugh when I think about it because it's been three years and in some ways I am still recovering. Like my, my life in the last three years has been a series of transitions Hmm. or maybe one perpetual transition. So for the first year I spent most of my time traveling, speaking, doing advocacy work for a year. And then, um, I grad partway through that year, I started kind of gradually getting back into clinical medicine. And in 2015, so just over a year after I got out of the hospital, I went back to to work in the hospital, um, mostly full time. But I was still doing a lot of traveling and speaking. 
Um, and I did that for now almost two years. It's been almost two years that I've been working as faculty in a residency program uh, during the week and traveling and speaking to varied groups mm-hmm. on the weekends. Um, and now I've we've just made another transition, um, which is kind of kind of answers your question from earlier. Um, we had an advisory committee of people who had been helping us make decisions about which speaking engagements to say yes to or no to. And we decided with that committee that um, at the end of 2017, I'm going to step out of the speaking circuit and refocus my energies and, and time and um, presence here at home with my family and in the community where we live. Hmm. Um, so it's just, it seemed like, one transition after another that I never would have gone through had it not been for Ebola. Right. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it, it affects, still affects my everyday life. And I you know not a day goes by that. I don't think about it or that I don't talk about it in some way with somebody. Um, so yeah, I fully recovered, but I'll probably keep on recovering for a long time. Sure. Wow. Do you think you'd ever do any more missionary work overseas? whether it be in West uh, Africa or anywhere else. Yeah. Um, I've been on a few short-term kind of trips in the last three years. Um, and actually back in April of 2017, I, I got to go over and work for a couple of weeks in Samaritan's Purse uh, Emergency Field Hospital in, in northern Iraq. In Mosul. And, and, yeah, it was, it was just outside of Mosul, taking care of victims of the war there. Yeah. Um, so I've gotten to do some some of that kind of work. Uh, ultimately, though, yeah, we want to we we do still have a desire and a, a a wish to get back to the kind of work we moved to Liberia to do in the first place. Something cross cultural. Uh, yeah. Cr- Serving cross culturally in a place of great need. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I work in a hospital system here in Fort Worth, Texas. That is the it's the county hospital system. We are the safety net hospital for this area. Um, we take care of a, a large indigent population. The maternal mortality rate in the zip code where my clinic is located is the highest maternal mortality rate in Texas. And Texas has, I think, the highest maternal mortality rate in the United States. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'm serving. I, I didn't look up those statistics before this talk, so they may they may be slightly off. But that's all right. I think I think that's I right. Think I remember is, reading that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working even now in a place of great need, but there are a hundred doctors who could take my place tomorrow. And there are lots of places in the world where it's not just that um, people don't have great health care. It's that there is, there is no trained professional there to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And I feel a burden. My wife and I feel a burden to go serve in a place like that. Um, and it's largely motivated out of our religious faith. 
that mm-hmm. Jesus teaches us to care for the poor and the downtrodden and uh, those who are cast aside by society. And um, it's, easy, it's easy to see that in a very real and tangible way in places like Monrovia, Liberia. Um, so I want to get back to doing that kind of work. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I did make a promise in last week's episode, and I don't want to break it. So, Taylor, uh, it's, it's your spotlight, man. Sure. Um, so my question might um, be kind of like a two-part question, so I'll try and like condense it a little bit. Um, but can you talk about how um, being a critically ill patient has um, changed you at all emotionally, mentally, and spiritually? And if so, uh, can you like, just delve into that like a little bit, like how you've changed from before your trip and experience to now? Um, I, I don't know if it's, if it's solely from my experience as a critically ill patient or if it's also, um, well, I guess, I don't know if other people who suffer critical illness have the same experience or if it is more couched in the context of my illness and all, all that we experienced around uh, Ebola and the outbreak and all of the changes that have happened in our lives. Um, but what I find is that I am I'm more emotional than I used to be. I cry more easily. Um, and and I've, I feel like grief weighs more than it used to. Uh, I've lost some some close friends and family members in the last three years, uh, and spouses of friends have died, and I feel those losses um, much more heavily than I think I did previously. Um, I when I see somebody, especially somebody that I know, um, experiencing grief, it's like I can feel their grief with them. And I know that I can't. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's that I realize they are suffering in a way that I cannot share in. And they feel alone. And I, I feel burdened uh, for them, with them. Uh, that's 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 a bigger experience for me now than it used to be. As a physician, um, I find that that's even a little bit true in my relationship with my patients. Uh, I don't think I ever cried in the exam room before before I was a critically ill patient, but. Um, I have teared up more sitting in an exam room, either either sharing difficult news with a patient or even just trying to counsel a patient about really difficult life circumstances. Um, it feels much more personal to me in those interactions. Um, I guess I have a little a little less uh, of a barrier of defense mm-hmm. than I 
than I used to. Do you think that makes you a better physician? I hope so. Hmm. I hope so. And then my second part of my last question, this was the uh, the tougher question I was saving for the end, and I don't necessarily think... Tougher than that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that there's necessarily like a right or wrong answer. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts. Um, so just reflecting back on this um, entire like life-changing experience, I was curious as to uh, whether you had like uh, any regrets um, from going into like uh, missionary style working and like working overseas, um, just given that you know the toll that it's taken, and I just wanted to g uh, get a sense of like where your thoughts were at um, regarding your you know decisions to uh, go into this line of work. And I mean, you talked about like still wanting to continue it, but um, you know, just given the gravity of the emotional toll and the physical toll it's taken, like where where do you stand on that? Um, I don't regret it at all. Hmm. I don't regret it at all. Now, if you if you could step back in time and intervene before I held that woman's hands and you had said to me, hey, if you hold her hand, you're going to get Ebola. Well, I would have done it differently. Like I would not have made that choice if I had known the uh, immediate repercussions of it. But I don't regret it. Um, I, I know, and even in the, in the moment of my illness, I and mean, it's still true today, but even in the moment of my illness, I, I knew that what we were doing there when I got sick, it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. We were there with purpose. We were there uh, having compassion on people in need. And it was the right thing. And that took away any sense of regret or um, and it, it brought a tremendous amount of peace. And, and still, when I reflect on, uh, on that, on the experience of my illness and on the experience of the last three years, like in the moments when I get really introspective and, and questioning what what my wife and my family and I are doing with our lives um, I have a tremendous amount of peace knowing that what we did in Liberia was the right thing and what we're doing with our lives right now we're, we're seeking to do the right thing um, and that that uh, wipes away any sense of of regret that one might have. Ken, I, I, you, you've been so generous with the, your time. I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'll leave you with the final thought that you want to culminate this with. But, you know, we started rotations as a way of educating uh, medical students and physicians who are in practice, um, and we're educators, and that's what we do. And the students here, hopefully we inspire them to be educators someday, and they they take over our place when we're we're too long in the tooth for this. So... I'd really like to know if you could just give a couple of pieces of advice or one thing you've learned that you think every medical student, every practicing physician should know about the practice of medicine, about being a physician. Do you have something like that in mind that you can share? You've given us a lot of thoughts, but is there something that comes to mind that you would just want medical students to know about 
what you've been through and what you've experienced, not just from Ebola, but just as a missionary going into the, the most impoverished parts of the world. Could you, could, you, could you go there for us? When I've gotten to speak to medical students uh, on occasions in the past, I encourage people to go back and, and look at your admission, med school admission essays. Look at those essays you wrote uh, talking about why you want to become a doctor. And remember what your motivation is. Because good experiences, hard experiences, um, things that will inevitably distract you from that reason you said all those years ago or why you wanted to become a doctor. Um, so I encourage people, go back and look at those essays. Look at them when you're a second-year med student. Look at them when you're applying to residency. Look at them when you're a second-year resident trying to decide what to do with your career. We write something in those essays about we want to become doctors because we want to help people. We want to serve people. And I think the reason we write those things is because that is, that is at the heart of the profession of medicine. It is a sacred profession where we are given the privilege to enter into other people's suffering, into their vulnerability, and, and to have compassion on them, taking care of people. Well, I, and I, I, I just can't thank you enough. And I just hope you get to hide back being a, 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 just, a, just a country GP, taking care of maternal, you know, pregnant moms somewhere where people will leave you alone and you can go back to what you started to do in the first place. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the Media and Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations.